This is episode 55 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Tony Miland Santiago. But I had to figure that out by trial and error, you know, and so and so that's how it affects you, because then that's part of the culture. So even if I see a patient that I've seen maybe two or three times and there's, for example, Spanish speaking patient, um, you see them two or three times and they already want to receive you as family. So even creating that, that client therapist line, right? That professional, that professional line where this is as far as I can go. You know, the reality is that for us Latinos, part of the therapeutic process sometimes is that embrace. You know, sometimes is that therapy, is that um, that kiss in the cheek, that therapeutic touch, because in as a culture, that's what we yearn for. That that's who we are. We are, we are loving and, and it, we're very physical in that nature. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we have part one of my conversation with Tony Miland Santiago. Uh, this was an awesome conversation that I learned so much, and I'm really excited for you guys to learn from Tony and to check out his show, which is should be released by the time this comes out. So if you're here from Tony's show, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. And if you like what you hear on this episode, then go check out Tony's show when you're done listening. So in this episode, we talk about Tony's upbringing in Puerto Rico and how he found his way to music therapy and how his experience as a Spanish-speaking individual has informed his clinical practice and continues to inform and impact his clinical practice. In part two of this conversation, Tony shares with us his top five tips for working with Spanish-speaking populations and just like lots of awesome practical advice, things to keep in mind, cultural differences we may not even be aware of. Um, he has a nice challenge for us in that conversation as well. So Definitely stay tuned next week for the second half of my conversation with Tony. If you are enjoying the show, please consider taking a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really help the show be more visible to people trying to find this kind of content, uh, stay inspired, and I get a lot of feedback from people who 
maybe haven't heard about music therapy or are looking into studying music therapy who find the show and it really informs their decision. So please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Music Therapy Chronicles and consider joining our Facebook group. I'd love to have some more dialogue going, conversations in there, what you're learning from the episodes, what you want to see more of, all that good stuff. So check us out online. Without further ado, let's get into this episode with Tony. All right, Tony, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. Hey, how are you doing? I am, you know, today's an up day in all this kind of stuff. I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited for, for your invitation. Uh, this is something that, that I've been wanting to do for a while, to be in a podcast, you know, with a friend and a colleague. And I've been following you for a couple of months now, and I love the work that you're doing. So congratulations of bringing so much value to to a profession. Thank you. Uh, the feeling is mutual because I'm super excited for what you are creating, which we'll get into in depth um, because I think you're going to help so many people be better clinicians through this work. And that's the goal. That's yeah. The goal. So to start us off, uh, oh, and I guess I'll say that for the listeners, we are cross-posting this episode, right? So we um, are. If you're listening to Music Therapy Chronicles, hey, <laughs> when you're done with this, go check out Tony's podcast, which we're going to talk about. Um, so to start us off, will you tell us about your upbringing in Puerto Rico? Sure. So I am native to the island of Puerto Rico. It's called the Island of Enchantment because it's so beautiful. We are the door of the Caribbean, and we're one of the three major Antilles islands, being Puerto Rico, the Hispaniola, and then Cuba. Uh, I was born in the mid 80s. So I've been around for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was a beautiful upbringing. I I come from a family that is extremely musical. My father uh, was a saxophone player for many years. And he actually grew up in the in the late 60s and 70s, which was, was the big boom of salsa music. And so he decided at the age of 13 to pick up the saxophone. And it was a great time because salsa music was just blowing up. So he was playing a bunch of different gigs and and his passion for music was really huge. And he later decided to to become a, a psychiatrist, a doctor. But he tells me the story that he actually paid for medical school playing gigs in the 70s. Just, I think it's the coolest thing. You know, he shows me pictures of him like wearing bell button, you know, pants and the shirts with the with the big neck situation going on. And and uh, that was really cool. Um, so yeah, my, my father really loves music. Um, and in the car, we would listen to everything. Me and my sister have a younger sister and my dad would play anything from, you know, salsa, merengue, bachata, boleros, which are like the Spanish ballads, uh, all the way to air supply, earth, wind and fire, um, Hell Barbert and the Tijuana Brass. I don't know if anybody knows who those are, but that's perfect. It's excellent music. Uh, and so from my mother's side, uh, she comes from a family that loves to play um, a lot of Puerto Rican music. So they, many of them play guitar, they play hand drums, they're called pleneras or panderos. Uh, and most of these musicians have no training. 
So my dad actually has some some musical training uh, when he was going through school, but my mother didn't have any training. So my mom is an ear trained musician, and uh, she is a Catholic, but she's uh, she's one of these Catholics that that they play guitar and congas during the mass. You know, <laughs> it's yes, a high tempo. Yes. It's a high tempo <laughs> mass, and. Um, she used to play a lot when she was younger. There's actually a story they told me where they used to get in the public transportation vans and the big ones during Christmas, her and her cousins, um, and they would start playing music for the people in the van. So we call it in Christmas, we call this parranda, right? We, we, we play music to other people. And so uh, they would play parrandas in, in vans, they would play parrandas around the, the, the neighborhood. And so I come from this conglomerate of my dad, who's a saxophone player who grew up in the countryside, and my mom, who is an ear-trained musician who grew up in the city. Mm. So ve very polar opposites um, upbringings. Uh, and so I was born in, in San Juan. I was raised in the, in the capital for the first four years. And once my sister was born, we moved to the city of Caguas, and that's where I lived my whole life until I left um, in 2008. And so as I was growing up and listening to all of this music uh, that was impacting the way that I grew up loving music, right? Those different backgrounds. Uh, one day I talked to my dad and, and I said, hey, I, I want to start studying music. I, I want to follow your footsteps. Now, bear in mind at this point, for those of you that don't know me, I'm six foot two. Wow. So <laughs> I'm a big dude. And uh, I grew up playing basketball since the age of seven. But, you know, at the age of 13, I was already looking for something new and I admired, you know, my parents, obviously. So I talked to my dad and I said, you know, I wanted to start taking some music lessons. And so I would go to school from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. I went to a, a Baptist school which also kind of influenced the music that I play because we played a lot of contemporary worship music in Spanish and so forth. And then from 3.30 to 5.30, I would go to a public music school in my town. And after using, I don't know if any of you got to use the Dan Hauser for your music theory. Uh, so that was the book. I will never forget that book because I had to get to lesson 37 <laughs> to move to the saxophone. So you couldn't touch any instrument until you were in lesson 37 of the Dan Hauser. Wow. And I found that so fascinating that I think it was November of 1997. This is where I got to lesson 37 of the Dan Hauser. I memorized that lesson <laughs> and I sat next to my teacher and I looked at him straight in the face and I did the lesson 37 all by memory. And he just, you know, we just started laughing. So that, that's, that's where things started happening. I started playing saxophone and uh, started in an elementary band, uh, moved my way up into intermediate and, and advanced band. Uh, but I actually started in the alto saxophone. So after the alto saxophone, my professors moved into tenor and I fell in love with the tenor. And any of you out there that play tenor saxophone, you, you know when you hear that deep, sound it's just it transforms your life uh so i started playing jazz uh like that fast forward uh i graduate high school and i start college in pre-med i go to the university of puerto rico because i wanted to follow my father's footsteps you know i wanted to be a physician you know um 
And I'm sure that a lot of you have gone through this because I hear this story all the time of music therapists, uh, music educators that start in biology because they wanted to be doctors. And then all of a sudden you find that you have this knowledge in your mind of what you want to do, but you just have this burning desire inside of you that does not stop. And that's exactly what happened to me. I did my first year of uh, pre-med and just that burning desire of studying music just popped up and I had to talk to my parents and let me tell you, it's not easy being a Latino, going to your dad and being like, hey, puppy, you know what? I am not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a musician. Perfect. Because <laughs> the first question they have is like, how are you going to pay your bills? Mm -hmm. You know, uh -huh. um, but interestingly, my, my mom and my dad, because they knew the passion that I had for music, they were very understanding. And um, in the span of two weeks, I switched universities. I switched my student uh, grants to a new school. And I was freshman all over again. Wow, that's tough. <laughs> Which, it was super fun. Freshman all over again. But that sensation of, of feeling home, like this is where I belong. This mm -hmm. is what I needed to do. Uh, and so I, I, I'm going through my undergraduate degree. Now, this was a turning point in, in the story because at this point, my mom was raised by her aunt. My grandmother passed away many years ago and her auntie was the one that took care of her, um, Elisa. And she started exhibiting uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease uh, and dementia. She would start giving away her groceries. We would go visit her and she would put, you know, perfume and in, in, in different foods. And uh, I was just very, very confused. So we decided to take her home with us to take care of her. Um, and at this point, my father's, uh, my, my mom and my dad, got divorced in 1999. So they've been divorced for a little bit. Um, and so in my house, it was me and my mom and my sister, and now my grandmother. So I was raised uh, with women in the house, very powerful, brilliant, loving, kind woman. Um, and so as I was going through my music journey in college, I was also a caregiver of a dementia patient in my house. Mm -hmm. And where music therapy comes into the equation, um, one day I was in my room. So my room was perpendicular to, to my abuela's. I, I call her abuela, my grandmother, even though she was my mom's um, auntie. But I just loved her as my grandma. And so I, I would always look into her room. And something that fascinated me was that every single time she would watch the mass on TV or... She would hear me playing a song in the saxophone or a piece of music. She always clapped on the beat. She danced on the beat. She would sing along with me. And as somebody who knew nothing at this point, you know, I'm talking about 2005, 2006, um, about the power of music in, in the brain, you know, how, how music impacts the brain processes, I was fascinated. And I was captured by this. So 
as a nerd that I was, <laughs> I went running to my dad's to my dad's house. I hopped in the car and I and I started running to his house. And I said, "Hey, puppy, I went to Google. Now this is Google in the mid two thousands, so <laughs> it it yep. was not Doctor Google. It was more like Master Google. Yep. You know, and uh, this is the beginning of Google Scholar, mm-hmm. Scholar.google.com." And so I went to Google Scholar and I started looking for keywords, music and the mind, music and the brain, uh, music and dementia for a paper that was writing for a class. And that's how I stumbled upon music therapy in a search for an article. So I ran to my dad's house and I said, Bobby, what is this? Have you heard about this ever in your life? Because in Puerto Rico, you, you don't hear about these things. Um, thankfully, now we do because we have fantastic music therapists there uh, working really hard to grow the profession. But, you know, 15 years ago, that was not the case. And so he said, you know what? I actually think that I've seen something before. Let me check. So he goes to the second story of his house. He, he had a small second story house, open concept. And so he went up to the second story and he opened this closet where he had all of his books when he was in medical school, you know, years ago. And he takes this book that was incredibly thick and incredibly big. And it was called The Synopsis of Psychiatry. And in like a page 300 or 400, somewhere in the middle of that book, there were two or three pages that talked about music and the brain. Yeah. I mean, my mouth was just like, what? Yeah. Uh, because then, then you've been reading about this for a while, but we never connected the dots of the passion that I had for music and the passion that I had for for medicine and, and wellness. And in the synopsis of psychiatry, it talked a little bit about the historical context of of music and and the healing, you know, properties of music and how many of the of the doctors and the shamans of the tribes are also the musicians of the tribes around the world. Um, it talked about the story of, you know, the biblical story of King David and, and, and Saul. Um, and so I said, okay, I think I have found my passion. This is it. So in, I would say in like a span of a month or so, I started looking for programs and I decided to, to pursue my equivalency in music therapy um, at Florida State University. And I didn't do my due diligence assignment to know what kind of professors they had, because mm-hmm. apparently that's the thing here in the States, because you have so many options, it's really important for you to know what's your professor, uh, your professor's specialty, what is their research um, specialty, and I didn't do it. But I was lucky, thank God, <laughs> that uh, Dr. Jane Stanley was in Florida State, and she's one of the pioneers of neonatal intensive care unit music therapy with the preemies. Uh, she had a lot of research out there starting in the 1990s with medical music therapy. And so I was in the right place in the right time. Um, now, that transition as a Spanish speaker was very difficult. Because if you think about it, I took English in, in Puerto Rico. Everybody has to take English in school since you're little. But, you know, it's, you know, grammar and you might be doing some readings and you know, I remember being in 12th grade and one of the days my English teacher just brought a bunch of donuts and played a movie in the in the VCR. <laughs> remember those big things with the big TV and mm-hmm. the VCR? <laughs> so she will bring the, the VCR player with the TV and then just play a movie. Um, 
but one of the one of the really cool ways that I I learned English, um, obviously trying to be very conversational, but also with the advent of DVDs. Mm-hmm. What I started doing is I started watching the movies with the Spanish subtitles, and then I would watch it again with the English subtitles. So now I would read what I was listening to, and then I would watch the movie without any subtitles and test my brain how much information I was actually capturing from the previous times and, and from the from the moment. So that was one of the techniques that my English teacher used. And so we loved her because she would come in with a bunch of donuts and a movie, and that was the <laughs> English class. <laughs> so um, so when I went to, to Florida State, um, I haven't been speaking English every single day. It was my second language. And so I was trying to make up this level of, of, of having a collegiate experience um, in a school like this where all of my peers were from University of Alabama and Tennessee and, you know, University of Central Florida. So all of these big, beautiful schools. And I felt so, um, the word is not powerless, but insecure. Then there was a lot of insecurities because I'm coming from Puerto Rico as a, as a student that was, you know, thriving and, and loving what I was doing and getting really good grades to know how to transform everything that I knew in a language that I was not speaking fluently all the time. Uh, but I was very lucky and very blessed to have a circle of friends that were very compassionate. And I had a couple of friends from Florida, Alabama, and Tennessee. Um, and this group of friends, they were very close to me every time that I had to do a paper, you know, they would say, Tony, email me the paper so I can take a look at it and, and correct it. I mean, just beautiful people. If if I was behind, you know, in the music therapy methods class, we would be in chapter six and I was still in chapter three because at the beginning, I have to read in English and then translate it in my head in Spanish and then understand the concepts and then keep going. So I was very frustrated. And I remember talking to my dad uh, around October, and I said, listen, if I don't pass the midterms, I'm going back home. You know, because I was always behind, always behind, always behind. And I, ha- I had a sit down with, with my professors because they saw that I was very frustrated. And, it, you know, it was not only me. We had p- students from Japan and from uh, China and Malaysia. And so a lot of people were going through the same thing. And I remember my professor telling me, Tony, this is a competency-based program. So the only person that you're competing with is yourself. Mm. So work hard, try again. And, you know, during the tests, I will be the last one to leave every single time because I always looked around. Um, I was always the last one to leave. And the professors were always very caring, making sure that I understood the questions in the testings. so that helped with the overall experience. And so as time passed, uh, what I realized was that then, since we're going to be talking about language, what happened was all of a sudden one day I woke up and I said, did that just happen? Did I just have a dream in English? I love when that happens. <laughs> I was like, what? wait, what just happened? And so I asked the question to, 
I can't remember who I asked, but I talked to someone about it. And they said, you know, I read somewhere that if you start dreaming in your second language, that means that you're becoming bilingual, that now you can, you're thinking in the second language. And that was the beginning of a really interesting journey because at this point now, my, my accent, which is still there, um, but my accent was very, very thick, I promise you, um, started getting a little bit better and I started assimilating a little bit better with the English and I survived. I, I survived school, um, did my internship at Florida Hospital, which is now called Advent Health. Um, and there I had the opportunity then to work with a lot of Spanish speaking patients because this is flow this is central florida in 2010 2011 and so when the market crashed in 06 and 07 um, a lot of puerto ricans actually moved from puerto rico to central florida and so many of my patients were spanish speakers and central florida has a lot of venezuelans and puerto ricans and colombians and cubans that have migrated from miami um, and so i started using a lot spanish and I noticed huge difference in the therapeutic process when a session was provided in English and provided in Spanish. Not, not only differences in language, obviously, but cultural implications of the language. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, I would go to, to a Spanish-speaking, they go an English-speaking uh, patient and for the majority of them, you have to warm up to them because they know that, you know, you're different and, and these things happens when, when, when you're a Latino that sometimes you always have the patient that they know that you're different and they're trying to figure out what you're there. But with the Spanish speaking patients, as soon as you said, you know, I'll make up a name, you know, uh, Mrs. Correa. Hi, I'm Tony with music therapy and, uh, do, do you speak Spanish? Habla español? And they would say, Ay, sí, mijo, pues déjame contarte que yo llevo aquí muchísimo. And then would you start telling me the whole story of why they were in the hospital just because I spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. So even culturally, the connection was so quick. And that's where I felt a really big growth in, in the dynamics and, and how you present yourself as a clinician. You know, what, what are the differences um, when you when you present to an English speaker and to a Spanish speaker still very respectfully, you know, still very present in the moment to address the salient need. But uh, the dynamics change a little bit. And so just being open and receptive to how that person reacts and and there's everything, you know, when, when you work with a Spanish speaking population, you, you always have the, the patient or the client that is timid and quiet and doesn't talk a lot and most of the stuff happens in the music uh, but there's always a person that loves to talk and as soon as they realize my mm -hmm. friend that you speak Spanish forget it if you do one song in 30 minutes it's a miracle <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> it really is uh, so that, that was a really beautiful experience and so I got to work there for four or five years and that that really helped me grow as a music therapist um I a little bit later moved to South Florida to work for Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care with Dr. Russell Hilliard, who's an amazing clinician and, and leader. And a little bit after that, I moved to Houston, got an opportunity to work in um, MD Anderson Cancer Center, 
try to restart a, a program, music therapy program that they had since 1993. And about a year later, um, there were some financial issues that were happening in MD Anderson. And so I was making really good friends in uh, Houston Methodist Hospital. And I applied for Houston Methodist and they opened a position for music therapy and oncology as I was applying to the position. And that's where I've been ever since. So what's interesting is that there's been a lot of doors that have been closing and opening, but they, they all had a purpose, mm. you know? And, and so as music manifests differently in your life, as you grow up from your, you know, emo phase and your rock and roll phase, and in my case, my salsa, my salsa phase, and, and my undergrad was in jazz performance, so my, my jazz phase, and so all of these things that informed me of, of who I am as a musician, who I am as a clinician, um, and just in general, who I am as a person. Um, so yeah, that's my story. What a good one. And you speak very well. Obviously, you've been using English fluently for a long time, <laughs> but you speak very, very well. <laughs> Thank you. So there's a lot of really good information in there. Um, how do you think being from Puerto Rico impacts your practice, your professional practice in ways that like me from the States, what are some differences you think there would be? Did that make yeah. any sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, in a way, because the thing about part particularly Puerto Rico, um, differently from the other, you know, brother and sister countries that speak Spanish um, Puerto Rico is actually part of the United States. Mm, true. And, and a lot of people don't know this. Um, and so that has been difficult in, in the political sense and any, and it affects therapy because a lot of people you're in the middle of therapy and they're asking you questions about it. Um, but I take it as an opportunity for, for educating. And a lot of people don't know that Puerto Rico was part of Spain for 500 years and and the United States took it over in 1898. And in the early 20th century, Puerto Ricans got the citizenship to to actually, the, the reason really was to be able to go to war. That's, that's the actual reason. Um, and in the 1950s, uh, we received the title the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, Estado Libre Asociado de Puerto Rico. So we are part of the United States, but we have our own government. It's just a very weird relationship uh, that it will take me hours just to talk about this topic. But because of the complexity, you know, as, as a Puerto Rican, sometimes it's difficult because especially here in the United States at the beginning, I started noticing a, a lot of friction where you know, the, the American patient or, or client or even colleagues, you know, in the hospital didn't see you as somebody from here. Mm -hmm. And then you would meet Latino um, clients, patients, colleagues, and then a lot of them, because they knew the history, they didn't consider you Latino, they consider you American, you know. So Puerto Ricans, we are in this limbo of identity. <clears throat> Um, and so my quote unquote Puerto Ricanness, uh, the way that it affected things is as Puerto Ricans were people that 
we're very we're very happy we're very loving um we are high energy we embrace everyone um and so at the beginning for me that was very difficult because if you think about the cultural differences you know mm-hmm. I, I would i would go to friends that i just met and i would kiss them in the cheek yeah. And here, that's a big <laughs> no, no. Yeah. But I had to figure that out by trial and error, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and so that's how it affects you because then that's part of the culture. So even if I see a patient that I've seen maybe two or three times, and there's, for example, Spanish-speaking patient, um, you see them two or three times, and they already want to receive you as family. Mm-hmm. So even creating that that client therapist line, right? That professional, that professional line where this is as far as I can go. You know, the reality is that for us Latinos, part of the therapeutic process sometimes is that embrace. You know, sometimes is that therapy is that um, that kissing the cheek, that therapeutic touch, because in as a culture, that's what we yearn for. That that's who we are. We are. We are loving and, and it, we're very physical in that nature. And so seeing somebody who's like, like a 67-year-old lady with, with no family and the music therapist might be the only person that goes visit them, you know, there's a high chance that the lady's going to go for the hug and mm-hmm. the kiss and, and give you the blessing. That's also very common in, in Latino cultures where they'll say, you know, Dios te bendiga, God bless you, um, because we respect a lot of our, our, our elders. And so they always give us the blessing. Um, and so that's how it's different that when you're working with other cultures, you know, um, Anglo-Saxons or Americans or people from either other countries, when I had patients from India, the dynamics will be different. When I had patients from, from Arabic speaking countries, you know, you don't look at the woman in the eye and, and you have to talk directly to the husband. <clears throat> so. So the way that it impacted me, at least in being Puerto Rican, is that I can pick up on s- certain uh, nonverbal cues when I'm working with the with the patients to know how much attention nonverbally do they need, right? And at the end of the day, one of the things that we as music therapists are really, really good at is to provide that safe therapeutic space. That, that space of acceptance, that space of, of almost Rogerian, like, right? Client center, like, I'm here for you. I'm here to, to provide for you. I'm here to address this need that you have with you in this moment. Um, and I feel that that's, that's been one of the biggest contributions. Because at, at the beginning, I didn't see it as much as a contribution because one of my feedbacks when I was doing my internship uh, was that I was very loud. And that I spoke and that I spoke, you know, just say, you know, you're talking too loud and you're talking too fast and it's very hard for the patient to understand you. So I had to reel back myself a little bit. Um, but when it comes to to those nonverbal things and 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 um, using that second language that I had as a tool for engagement, as a tool for rapport building, as a tool for transformation in the therapeutic process. Um, that's great. And, and that's why I have this passion of 
telling a lot of the music therapists and clinicians to to work hard, work work hard to learn Spanish, work hard to understand your your Spanish speaking clients, uh, because then your worldview is just going to be expanded dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, before we move into language skills, so you mentioned um, the kiss on the cheek, the blessing, uh, eye contact with other cultures, those kinds of things. Are there any other like big, broad cultural differences that the listeners should know about to be aware of um, if they're interacting with clients who are from Spanish-speaking cultures? Yeah, um, outside of those nonverbals that with... With Latino patients, I, and I've been saying this a lot with American patients, I, I think the culture has been shifting a little because mm. uh, in the 10 years that I've been practicing music therapy, I've noticed that now a lot because America is becoming more and more blended and more multicultural, I'll see a lot more of, of the American families being more engaged in the, in the healing process of the patient. So before, I would see a lot of the of the the white and the black, not so much the black patients, but mostly like the, the white patients being more alone and the family would come sometimes. But now I see a lot more family being involved. So I feel like there's a cultural shift happening because mm-hmm. you would see the dramatic difference of, of going to an American and, um, and they would be maybe there with maybe one family member. Uh, and then you go to the Latino room there's like 20 people in that room. <laughs> you know, the nurses are trying to kick people out of the ICU. Uh, and so that's one of the that's one of the dynamics that, that I have to work on. The other dynamic is that um, everybody wants to partake in the music process. So as a music therapist, making sure that I brought a bunch of instruments, that I brought lyrics, because I knew that they were going to want to engage. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that in, in, in working with, with Spanish-speaking clients, sometimes, a lot of times, the majority of the time, family members tend to interject yeah. and, and to interrupt the therapeutic process. And so it's very important to make sure that they understand boundaries during therapy, that they understand that, that you're there for the patient. And all of them are part of the therapy process, right? But that you notice that there, if there's any dynamics going on, you know, po- power struggles, that happens a lot, especially if your patient is a lady um, or especially if it's an older lady, you know, because you have the families that treat the, the older lady as, a, as, a, as, the, as the mom of the family, as the top of the totem pole in the family. And if she speaks, everybody quiets. And there will be the other side of the coin where, oh, she's tiny and old and weak, and we're going to speak for her, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we respect that, understand where they're coming from? Because this is their way of grieving. When somebody is sick in our culture, their way of grieving is trying to take control. Um, and this happens across cultures, but it's very pr- uh, predominant in our culture. Um, how do you bring solace and comfort to the family while still while still making sure that they understand that the patient is your your primary focus in the moment that you want to help them if the goal of the session is to increase meaningful interactions between the patient and the family that that is very 
uh, explicit that that's what you're working on. That you're trying to really help connect them with the family. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you totally followed my train of thought because I'm thinking, yeah, okay, cool. so if there's 20 family members, how do you focus on the patient? Because I would be so <laughs> overwhelmed by that. I'd be like, okay, even when there's just one assistant in the room or like with this whole telehealth stuff going on right now, there's an oh, assistant yeah. with most of my clients. And even yeah. that, I'm like, you have too much control. I don't have enough control. And that's totally me. <laughs> so yeah, I can't imagine focusing and getting everyone else to focus on the client if the whole family is there. Um, right, right. Yeah. And, and and we're humans, right? So we're therapists, but we're humans. And for sometimes for us, it's very easy to feed from the energy in the room. Mm. But we need to train ourselves to be the energy in the room. So so you don't want to to get fed in that energy. You want them to come down with you, right? So we talk about ISO principle of music therapy. Yeah. So we, we meet them where they are, and then we slowly try to bring them in to understand that that I am the therapist, that I'm, I'm here to help you guys, and this is the experience that we're going to jump on to facilitate this process. One of the things that I tell my interns um, to do before going into a session, re regardless of who it is, if it's a Spanish-speaking uh, client or not, is that right before you go into the session, in the medical setting, what we do is we foam our hands with, with alcohol, mm -hmm. right? So as, as I'm foaming my hands, I do a little mantra. And I say, I take my ego out of the way, and I'm here to be present for them, right? Because for us, it's very easy to, to have expectations. And as music therapists, that we always have session plans and we're going to do this, A, B, C, right? And we know that more than half of the time, the session plan doesn't go as we planned it, yep. right? And then you start freaking out and then you start trying to make adaptations in a rush because you had an expectation, hmm. right? So for, for me, it has been very important to create goals, but to not have expectations. Because if you don't have expectations, you have a goal that you want to address, but then you don't have expectations, you're not going to feel that inner conflict of hmm. I didn't do it, right? If I go into a session because the, the staff members told me that, you know, this patient is in pain, and they've been saying that they're in pain for days and we brought in music therapy and then I go into the session and okay, my goal is pain management. But then you go in and the patient starts talking to me and then they start crying and they tell me their story and we put their story into a song or we do a later substitution or if they're so I don't want to talk about it. I say, you know, show me how you're feeling in the instrument and let's take you to a safe place musically. And then the session's over and I ask them, how's your pain right now? At the beginning, they said nine and now they say two. And there can be legitimate changes in, in pain, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about pain, what kind of pain are we talking about? Because they didn't specify. What if it was emotional pain? Yeah. Right. It's an, it's a, so as I'm addressing the, the emotional expression portion to increase their emotional expression, to increase the, their inner locus of control so that they can make choices. And then I go to the nurse and say, hey, 
you know, the patient's pain is a lot better. At the beginning it was nine, at the end it was a two. But I did realize that, you know, the patient's pain was not really physical, it was emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, and so as you present yourself to to a variety of populations, it's really important to understand the cultural context from where they come from. You know, re- regardless of the country, regardless of the race, knowing the family dynamics, culturally, where do they come from? You know, how, what is their relationship with music like? And then you do your best as a student of your patient or your client to learn how can you connect with them and then take them to where they want to go therapeutically. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's one of the best tools that you can have. Yeah, that was very well said. a nice fluid conversation Tony's so easy to talk to and I hope you are looking forward to the second half of this conversation next week where we get into a lot more practical advice and ways to be more informed as a clinician as well as what to look forward to in Tony's upcoming podcast If you're looking for a way to support the Music Therapy Chronicles, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash musictherapychronicles. That link is always in the show notes, and patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions. So when I have a scheduled interview come up, I post it on Patreon, and if that's a guest you're interested in asking something specific, you've always wanted to ask them something, or it's a topic you're interested in, there's your opportunity to do that. So please consider checking out our Patreon um, for a dollar a month. You can have that opportunity. And finally, if you or someone you know wants to be on the show, please send an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. Thank you so much for making the time to listen to this week's episode. If you listen to episode 50, then you know that I was hoping to find a Uh, concise tagline I guess to end these episodes and I haven't been able to come up with one but I did think it would be cool to share a quote at the end of each episode Um, so if you have a quote you want to hear send it in Uh, this week I'm going to read one from L.R. Nost that I think is pretty relevant to all of us right now and it says it's not our job to toughen our children up to face a cruel and heartless world It's our job to raise children who will make the world less cruel and heartless. Mm